You're listening to Golf Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. Eric Gagorno is a student of his craft, which I believe is the highest compliment that can be paid to someone regardless of their profession. In Eric's case, his profession happens to be golf instruction. And over the past 12 years as a golf pro, after giving more than 20,000 in-person lessons, after reading every golf book and seeing every golf video available, and after watching scores of other golf instructors give lessons, Eric is still working to find better ways to teach people at all skill levels to improve their games. One of the ways that Eric has been working to improve golf instruction is through online video. And over the past two years, Eric and his business partner, Mary Lengel, have created an archive of more than 250 instructional videos, which they continue to produce on a daily basis. And they've attracted more than 32,000 subscribers on their YouTube channel. But here's an even more impressive metric. Seven months ago, Eric created a YouTube video on the subject of only two drills you need for a perfect takeaway. As of today, that one video has 420,000 views. In all honesty, when Mary approached me about featuring Eric on Golf Yeah, I really wasn't that enthusiastic. My initial reaction was, okay, so here's one of 100 guys making golf instruction videos. But with a little encouragement from Mary, I dug deeper, and I quickly realized that there's a great story here. Maybe it's the way that Eric explains swing mechanics. Maybe it's his natural on-camera presence. Or maybe it's just because he's straight with people about what's necessary for them to succeed. Either way, I think there's something special going on here, and I'll let you decide for yourself by listening to Eric on this podcast. So, Eric, welcome to Golf Yeah. Gordon, thanks, man. I'll tell you what, that was a beautiful introduction. It makes it sound like I know what I'm doing over here. That was awesome. Thanks for having me, man. <laughs> My pleasure. Listen, before we ask for your backstory, I know that's the first question we talked about starting with, but I got to get to the urban legend, which is, is it true that you suspended your PGM membership so that you could wear shorts? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting that question comes up a lot amongst people that I talk to. It wasn't a decision that was directly related to that, but let's just say it was the culmination of a lot of things, the shorts thing being one of them. It sounds a little more ridiculous when someone says it out loud than it did when <laughs> I was thinking to, uh, to myself. Yeah. So is there a bigger backstory? I mean, do you need to have a current PGA membership to teach or do you need it at all? Yeah, you know what? It's interesting. When I first started, the PGA membership, I would equate to like a college degree. So when you're first getting uh, in the industry and you need to get a job, it's something that gets you in the door, right? It's something that looks good on your resume and you can have conversations with people. For me, I started working at the course that I currently work at when I was 15 years old. So I was, you know, I was working in the shop, doing little odds and end jobs. So I just ended up teaching at that same course and sort of found, hey, listen, there really is no need for me to have this card outside of, outside of just having it on my resume. I'm not going to have a conversation or an interview with someone where I need to have this. So I really tried to take a harder look at what value does that PJ provide me? You know, relative, obviously there's some fees and stuff, but it wasn't even about the money. It was just the time that I was investing in trying to be involved with it and really try and do things to make it better. 
And it's very similar to a college thing, just very old school mentalities with a lot of the principles. I thought I'd be able to kind of make some changes to help moving forward with it. And it just didn't turn out as I thought. I mean, it's an awesome organization. I have nothing bad against them, but and you can't wear shorts. So <laughs> Okay. I didn't mean to start with a controversial topic, but I was curious about it because yeah. I thought it was funny to begin with. What is your backstory? You mentioned that you actually started teaching when you're 15 years old. Can you take us all the way back where you started from and where you are today? Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in a little town called Nazareth, Pennsylvania. My father, I played all kinds of different sports growing up, was very competitive. My father was a good golfer. And so he used to take me to the golf course on the weekends and I got to play with him and his buddies. And you know, of course, when you're young, your father's like Superman to you, right? Your dad can kind of do no wrong. So I always looked up to these guys who were good at golf. The long story short is yeah, I played sports through high school, fell in love with golf more than any of the other ones. I ended up playing golf in college for two years. The tricky thing for me was, like you said, I started working at the course when I was 15. And then by the time I was 18, I actually had started giving lessons. And, you know, back then, this is a couple of years ago now, I was making probably, you know, I don't know, seven bucks an hour picking balls the range. And I found out these guys were making 50 bucks an hour teaching golf lessons. And I remember thinking to myself, like, holy cow, man, if I could make 50 bucks in an hour, like that would yeah. be unbelievable. And so I started charging $30, convinced a couple of people on the range that I could help them. It was really, 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 really bad, as you are when you start anything. And I uh, gave a lot of bad, 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 bad golf lessons. But, you know, I, I could kind of build relationships with people and help them enough where I got the time under my belt I needed to get better at it. To be very honest with you, it's. I wish I could say I started teaching because of the love of the game. I started teaching because of the money, man. It was like, <laughs> this is my next. This is better than eight bucks, seven, eight bucks an hour, right? Right. Now, Nazareth, PA is the home of Martin Guitars. Yes, sir. So do you play guitar? I've tried to play guitar twice and failed in both of those. My patience is something I'm trying to work on. So I've attempted twice. I have these beautiful Martin guitars right in my backyard. And so maybe even in the future. Okay. Now you went to Lehigh, so you must have been a good student because that's a tough school to get into. Yeah. So I did well in school. I graduated pretty high in my class. I studied a lot, right? I think I'm naturally, you know, can get some things, but I mean, I worked hard at it in high school. I wasn't like the genius in the class. I didn't have to study type of guy. I had to work hard at it and um, did well enough, went to Lehigh, played well enough in some golf tournaments where I got some scholarship money. It's a very low level division one, but a good academic school. And it was interesting when I first started was into 2008, 2007, 2008, then when the crash happened, the economic crash happened. So I went into school and all these kids at Lehigh who were getting their MBAs, were graduating, had these internships lined up. You know, they're all going to make 100 grand a year. I'm thinking, oh, man, this is freaking beautiful. Eight bucks an hour to 100 grand. <laughs> and then the collapse happened. And these kids at school with all these finance degrees couldn't even find a job. And so, you know, I started really taking a hard look at that point. I'm probably 18 at this point. And say, hey, you know, is it worth that $200,000 worth of debt for me to go to school for five or six years? Or, you know, can I turn this $30 an hour into 50, into 80, into 100, you know, not have a boss and not have a real job? So I never thought when I was growing up or in high school that I'd teach golf. Um, not for one second did I imagine that would be where I would go. But glad now, <laughs> looking back upon it, that we ended up this way. Yeah. I alluded to it in my intro, but I find your story about the rigor that you apply to becoming a pro or perfecting your skills as a pro to be really interesting. Can you give us some, just a little bit more detail on that? Sure. Yeah. So I think I'm pretty obsessive and addictive personality just kind of by nature. And so what happened going back to the story was I gave those first couple golf lessons was bad. 
And it was one of the first things that I really did ever in my life that I was like really not good at, like right off the bat and had a hard time improving. And there was like these mysteries to the golf swing. There's like, I didn't have answers to a lot of my questions. And so it's really turned into a sort of an obsessive, if you will, search to get better at this specifically, you know, really based around the fact that, hey, Joe Smith is going to be coming to get a lesson on a Wednesday. I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. Like just to not embarrass myself, I have to learn a little bit here. And man, I got to tell you from that, you know, five, six year time period, I mean, I kid you not when you say on there, man, I read every freaking book on golf swing, psychology, human anatomy. I mean, any video that came out, I studied until there was no more studying. And I think the progress I saw along the way, getting a little better, I saw progress in lessons, that momentum really, I felt good, right? It made me feel good. I was getting better at it. And it was really born from an obsession, if you will. And that was, I mean, I punted a lot of weekends. You know, I punted a lot of, my buddies were going on a you know, to the beach, whatever, and I'm going to watch a guy teach or I'm, I'm studying. So I had to give up a lot to do it, but I think it was worth it. Yeah. Do you, would you consider your methodology to be different or unique compared to what you read about or saw? Yeah. I hate to say a lot of the stuff back then, a lot of the things that I wanted to learn, a lot of the golf pros didn't have answers to. Like, I don't know if the technology wasn't as good back then or whatever. And I was sort of underwhelmed, to be honest with you, as I went through the process. Great, great, great people. But I was like, man, I have a lot of these questions and no one has answers to them. So part of it was born through that of no one else can give me an answer. I need to find it out by myself. One of the phrases that I've noticed that you used is unscrambling the noise in golf instruction. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, unscrambling the noise is just the idea that if you're a, let's say you want to learn about a topic, any topic really and you hop on YouTube or you go on Google and you type in that search, you're inundated now, right? With just a ridiculous amount of articles, videos, so on and so forth. And if you're looking for a topic, you don't really know where to look. You don't know who to trust, who's right, who's wrong. And you end up getting 10 different ideas on how to start something. What we're trying to do is say, hey, let's kind of focus your attention. You know, one guy, one person, listen to one voice, Let's unscramble all the noise, all the opinions, and let's find a way that you can really focus a systematic step-by-step way to get better at golf. And that's what we really are trying to do with Cogorno Golf. It, we just launched this past year, so it's a work in progress, but that was the main idea, sort of funnel all the other stuff out, focus your attention on a single voice, single plan. Yeah. One of the interesting parts of your story, I thought, was you tried to, after giving you know tens of thousands of lessons, you tried to transition to online. I don't want to tell the story for you, but you go out and you fail. And where you are now actually was kismet. You know, you meeting Mary was really by happenstance. Can you tell that story? Because I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) I'm giving lessons for several years at this point, getting better at teaching. I'm making an okay amount of money. I'm upping my lesson price. But still, when you have the business where you're one-on-one with someone, you're faced with, I can't scale that, right? So I can only teach X amount of hours per week times the amount of money I'm teaching. I have a pretty hard ceiling from a financial perspective. And so once I got past those first five years of studying the golf swing, I really want to get good at teaching, get good at my craft first. And I felt like I did at that point. So I really devoted the next two or three years to studying business, to studying finance, how to grow my business. And I followed a bunch of different guys online, um, Grant Cardone, Gary Vaynerchuk, Jim Rohn, Tony Robbins, guys like that. And they all sort of said the same message, which was, hey, if I want to scale my business at a bigger level, I need to do something online. I need to reach more people. So me, thinking I'm ready to go here, I go out. I think I spent maybe around $1,000. I bought a camera. I bought a mic. 
And I'm telling you, Gordon, I mean, like, no kidding. I probably tried to turn the camera on for like a half hour. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't get the darn thing turned on, let alone record a video. So it was a pretty quick, I tried a little bit because I spent a thousand dollars and that was enough money to kind of keep me motivated. But I tried to do two, three videos. I couldn't get the camera on. I couldn't get the mic in. I didn't know how to upload videos. I mean, it was brutal. So, I mean, I probably did that for like two weeks. And then I'm like, all right, you know what? That's enough of this. And like you said, I mean, very, whatever you want to call it, fortunate to meet Mary not that long after. And the domino sort of fell from there. Now, she came in for a lesson, correct? You didn't know her previously. Yeah, she came in for a lesson. Her doctor, her general doctor actually was the father of one of the kids that I teach. And it's crazy how deep you want to go with this, right? That summer, I went to a golf tournament by fluke chance to go watch one of the players I coach. I'm at that tournament. I'm on the first tee. At the exact time I show up, this gentleman's there. Tom, his name is. And he's there watching his son play. And if I hadn't been there that day watching my player randomly, and he didn't tee off at the same time as his son, I never meet Tom, which is Mary's doctor. I never really build a relationship with him. I never coach his son. I never meet Mary. You know, there's a lot of little pieces there which are kind of crazy looking back upon it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Now, what's her background? What did she do prior to meeting you? She comes from the PR world. So she worked for Rodale. I think I'm saying that right. She did a lot of book publishing, a lot of PR stuff. Has worked with a lot of big name, a lot of big name people. So I'm kind of like small peanuts for her, which is a transition. <laughs> but she, yeah, kind of like the PR world. Okay. Now you don't make, I want to talk about your business model for a minute because you don't make a whole lot of money off the YouTube videos. You have Cogorno Golf, which is a subscription-based model. You That's where you house your 250 videos and you've got them in a very well-structured course. Can you talk a little bit about how that works and you have different levels of membership, I understand? Yeah, so we do, right now it's just a membership site, which, well, not just a membership, but a membership site where there's different monthly plans. So right now we have three different tiers. We have a 19, a 39, and an 89 currently different plans where you get different forms of stuff. Essentially what there is on there is there is a, there's courses. So on YouTube, we do three videos a week and they're all kind of just randomly organized. They're random topics. It's sort of what's hot at the moment. On Cogorno Golf, we wanted to do is take those video topics and really put them into an organized course where someone could go in, really learn it step by step. I can guide them through the process. We have a Facebook group as part of that website where they can post their swings you know, I can really help them take them to the next level. So it's the videos, it's the Facebook group, it's more practice stuff. It's for golfers that are serious enough where, you know, the YouTube videos are helping maybe, but if I got a little guided feedback, I could really get to the next level. Yeah. Has that taken off for you? It does decent. I mean, we are probably getting 15 to 20 new members per week right now, which is, which I think is good, which is kind of what I anticipated for. I know some of my buddies who have golf websites that have two, three, four thousand members on their site. Wow. So that's sort of where I'm looking to go. But you know, that'll take me three or four years for us to get to that point, I think. So yeah, 15 to 20 a week. I mean, we do, you know, AdSense on YouTube, as you mentioned, you make some money off of it. it's not, you know, I'm not going to retire off of it. And then some of the products and stuff like that. So I'm hoping in two, three years from now, it's does well enough where it does those sort of numbers. Yeah. Now the ratio of your in-person lessons to online lessons is about 50-50 now. And you're you're hoping to change that ratio a little bit? Yeah, I probably have 50-50 now. I think by the end of this year, it'll probably be like 75% online, 25% in person. Wow. And then, yeah, it's this whole thing, the website and all the online stuff was really goes back to that conversation of like, I mean, I was teaching 50 or 60 lessons a week, like 50 or 60 in-person lessons. 
plus like prep time, shutdown time, talking to people. I mean, it was seven days a week. It cracks me up. A lot of people, I always bring this up, like people, I work seven days a week. I'm talking like I work seven days a week, not send an email, not, you know, whatever. I'm talking at the golf course, 10 hours a day, seven days a week. And I can do that when I'm 25, but yeah. I mean, I can't do that forever. So yeah, the idea was to get to 50-50 by the end of next year and we just check mark that goal. So I'm hoping 75-25 and then you know, eventually I'll just get to a point where I'll charge so much money to be in person that no one's going to want to do it. Right. right? You can be the next David Ledbetter or whoever. <laughs> That's right. right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So now listen, you create a ton of content. So do you ever worry that you're run out of topics to cover on videos? Oh man, all the time, all the time. Yeah. It's a constant, I don't want to say worry, but it's a constant thought is we post three YouTube videos every week. We shoot three to five YouTube videos every week. So it's a little easier for me, Gordon, because I'm in the community, like I'm in the forums online, I check the comments, I go watch what people are doing. So I kind of know what the golf community wants to see. The tricky thing is we're probably at 350 plus videos on YouTube, plus 250 on the membership site, plus another 100 or so for other sites. So like, what the heck else can I say? But it's a lot of repackaging. But yeah, man, it's a constant concern. Yeah. One thing I've always wondered about with golf instructors do you ever get somebody that's like a Charles Barkley who's so bad that you just want to say, why don't you learn how to play the guitar instead? <laughs> you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's probably, I don't know if there's ever been a time where I would like straight up say to someone like, hey, listen, man, this, this whole <laughs> golf deal is not going to work for you. Let's do something. I think there's been some scenarios now where I'm comfortable enough with myself where I might have a conversation and say, listen, you know, relative to what you want to do with golf. It's going to take a lot of work, you know, maybe try and discourage them a little bit. But I tell you what, though, some people surprise you, man. I've had some people where I looked at them at, at first and I'm like, this is not going to work. And then they, you know, they work a little harder than I think or X, Y, and Z. So I try and keep a glass half full mentality the best I can. Yeah. Who do you think was the best golf instructor of all time, either living or deceased or retired? Yeah, that's a good question, man. I think the best golf pros that I've seen, at least from a business perspective, are some of the guys you mentioned. I mean, David Ledbetter through the 80s and 90s just did a wonderful job of marketing himself. Looking back upon now what he did, he was really, really ahead of the game. I think guys like Jim McClain, Butch Harmon is a name that some people might you know. They, he's taught a lot of, uh, he taught Tiger Woods, he taught a lot of big name guys. But it gets to a point where it's tricky because you don't know how, like, are they good because the players they teach are so good? Or did they make their players that good? You know what I mean? Like right. Phil Jackson with Michael Jordan. Like Phil Jackson that good? Or was his team just so good? You know what I mean? So but those guys are up there. Yeah. You've read a ton of golf books and videos. Is there any one or two that stood out for you and that kind of shaped your philosophy of teaching or the game? Yeah, there's one book, Harvey Pennick. One guy's name is an old school guy that wrote the Little Red Book. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was one that I read early on that really, I thought, set the tone for a lot of things in my mind. Michael Hebron wrote, I think it was the inside. Michael Hebron out of New York wrote a book. I want to say it was called The Inside Moves the Outside or something along that effect, which was really advanced for me. In the beginning, there's so many. Stack and Tilt, when that first came out, opened my eyes to some different biomechanics stuff. And then guys like Dr. Bob Rotella or Gio Valiente, with some of the mental books have really been eye-opening as well. Yeah. Do you have a point of view on the single plane swing, golf swing like Mo Norman? I think Bryson DeChambeau mimics it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, Do you teach it at all? I don't. You know, it's some of the research that has come out within the past five years or so as our technology gets better. Guys like Sasha McKenzie, guys at Penn State like Mike Duffy were able to kind of measure these plane shifts. It seems pretty clear now based on what we know that there's no actual thing as a one plane swing. 
that no matter what these guys are trying to do, there actually is a plane shift during the downturn. Now, it might be very minor. We might not be able to see it on camera, but it does happen. I think the idea on paper sounds excellent. Minimal plane shift, yeah, keep the club face square to the arc the entire time. But you find with some of these pros, like what they say they're doing or what they think they're doing is in fact quite different than what they actually do. But Bryson DeChambeau with his setup with the handle very high, with the wrist conditions, he's got a lot of ulnar deviation at the top or like no hinge. And the way he set his clubs up with the one leg clubs, I think is probably the closest I've seen to that. But I think that's a good thought. Most amateur players come over the top, right? Hit a slice, something along that effect. So I think most amateur players would actually be better going more Jim Furyk, going more reroute the club during the downswing and drop it more inside because their feeling when they do a one-plane swing actually leads to over the top. Someone like Bryson DeChambeau, no big deal. Weekend golfer, maybe a different ballgame. Yeah. Do you teach your students a specific swing thought either for ball striking or putting? I wouldn't say I so much have like a certain thing or method. I would say there's certain principles though, to your point, that I probably do teach into most everyone, like overall body rotation, let's say, right? Like pretty clear across the board that the more you rotate in your golf swing, the better you're going to hit the ball. That's something that I'm pushing into everyone. Really basic fundamentals. Obviously, I'm checking setup, grip, ball position, those sort of things I would think everyone's doing. I'm really big on wrist conditions, you know, how your hands are your only attachment to the golf club and how you move them in space has a dramatic effect. So I would say if I were to funnel down what I do with everyone into a couple things, body rotation comes up a lot, good wrist conditions come up a lot. And if you can get those two things good, man, it's a lot easier to get everything else good. Yeah. You know, based on some of the stuff I've read about you, I've heard you say, is that you appear to approach golf as a pathway to personal development and self-discipline and attainment of goals beyond the game itself. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that really impressed me about you. From the beginning, as I was doing golf, I've always had in my mind that after golf, or once I get golf to the point where the business is what I want it to be, I would really like to delve into personal development. And I think through teaching golf for the past 12, 13, 14 years, whatever it's been now, there's a lot of parallels to golf. So when someone comes in and I'm trying to help them get better at golf, especially in the beginning, I taught a lot of kids, a lot of kids in middle school and high school and college. And man, half the lesson, we're talking about just life stuff, like you know how to manage their time, how to manage relationships, how to get better, what to do with this, that, and the next thing. And it's like 50% golf and 50% that. And it was really rewarding for me to see them improve at their life stuff, like school, relationships, self-confidence, things like that. Maybe even more so, and probably more so than the golf stuff. You know, it's nice for me to to hear someone shoots a better score, or you know, improves a little bit, or enjoys the game more. That's awesome. But hearing someone like, "Man, you changed my whole life," that's powerful, and yeah. that's like a drug for me. Where in the beginning, if I gave a golf lesson, they got better. I had such a high from that; it was so exciting. And now, you know, a decade later, it's, it's kind of less exciting, right? It gets less exciting over time. And so that changing a life thing for me is really, really exciting and, and kind of lights me up. And I think a lot of when anyone who coaches anything has a lot of those same sort of parallels. And then I think we can use those principles to help people really in any area. That's ideally where I'd like to sort of shift things moving forward once the golf stuff gets where we want. Yeah. Well, who or what have been your own sources of personal inspiration? So definitely a big Tony Robbins guy. And through Tony Robbins, I found Jim Rohn. I mean, I like Grant Cardone, Gary Vaynerchuk. I listened to Grant Cardone for like six months, like every day. I mean, on my phone, in my car, this, that, and the next thing. And that guy gets me motivated like no other person in the world. 
but he's so like 10x everything, go nuts, this and the next thing. And I can't go at that speed. So from there, I found Tony Robbins and he was more like, okay, like he was explaining things. I understand a lot of, of the things he says. He actually gives you strategies to improve in these areas that I've tested and I found, wow, like this really works well. And through him, I found Jim Rohn, who to me, Jim Rohn is probably the ultimate guy. Just an incredible, incredible communicator. He has an uncanny ability to take a seemingly complex topic and say it in a way, when I hear him say it, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, how did I not think of that? Or like, why am I not doing that? Like he says, and the impact he's had on me on, and like little things, Gordon, like the littlest tiny things that I can shift day to day that improve my mood or make me happy or whatever. Those guys, especially Jim Rohn have been really powerful. Yeah. And I mean, you're in business for yourself. You don't have a boss telling you what to do every day or, you know, rating your performance. So I think that that's sort of having that you know, personal coach, you know, whether it's Tony Robbins or anybody else, whether it's a book or online, I think is really a critical part of being in business. And I guess you found that to be true also. Absolutely, man. Honestly, I don't say that lately when I say like, guys like that, man, really changed my life, like really, really changed my life for the better. Yeah. Let's shift to topics a little bit. Have the students who've come to you for in-person lessons changed at all over the past 10 years in any respect? I mean, either because you get a lot of trash talk about millennials. And I just wonder if you see that in your students in terms of motivation or attitude or willingness to work hard. Yeah, 100%. So I think in terms of the clientele changing, as I've got more experience, as my price points have changed, that has had the biggest impact on who stands in front of me. When I started at $30 an hour, right, the type of people that I would work with, not better or worse, just different type of people, are different now than let's say I charge $150 for a lesson or if I charge you know X amount for a golf school. So I would say when I first started, I taught anyone. And then when I got a little better, it was a lot of junior players, a lot of millennials, a lot of like country club, kids whose parents had money and they play at country clubs. That was a lot of what I taught then. And now I teach a lot of like professional male adults. So like you know, a lawyer or a business guy or a doctor or something. That's more of who I'm spending time with now. And undoubtedly, when I taught the kids from, you know, maybe age 10 to like 20-ish age range, and especially as technology has changed and the phones and the internet, I mean, that's stuff that even, I just turned 30, so it's not like I have any of that, but I didn't have any of that growing up, right? I have it now, but I didn't grow up with a cell phone texting. I didn't have Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all these other things. And so the work ethic of the kids I don't know if the work ethic is lower. I just think they spend it in different areas than we did when we grew up. You know, we were outside playing. I was on the golf course. I didn't have anyone texting me. There was no video for me to watch. So I had no distractions. Now it's just such a different world. And, you know, I really saw that and thought, hey, I can either complain about it and not get these kids involved, you know, in person, or why don't I go to where they are? Everyone's on their phone. Everyone's on the internet. Why don't I go to the internet? And that's all that prompts. That was part of the deal with uh, doing the whole online stuff as well. Okay. You know, from what I've seen in your videos, you seem to be in pretty good shape. I guess two questions. How do you stay fit? And then is physical fitness really important in golf? I mean, I see a lot of overweight guys that hit the ball pretty well. <laughs> yeah, that's true. John Daly is, I think, comes to mind. As right, John Daly, right. <laughs> a little beer and a cigarette. And yeah, I think for me personally, I've built a discipline, which I force fed to myself to go to the gym every day. I, in my mind, distinctly remember, hey, like my whole deal, Gordon, is I want to be the best version of myself possible in every area. You know, like I look at potential, 
what could I be and look like and feel like and do when I'm 35, when I'm 40, when I'm 70, when I'm 80? And so for me, the best version of myself five years from now is looks different than what I do now. And so that's really the driving motivation behind the gym. I know that me going to the gym, building the discipline to get up every day at 530, to go to the gym for an hour, no matter if I feel like it or not, that discipline feeds itself and lends itself into all the other areas. I see positive benefits. So I think from a life thing, it can be incredibly important to build that and just pushing through barriers at the gym. Like my first hour of the day is my hardest hour of the whole day. Like I get through that, everything else is easy. I think in golf in particular, the lifting weights part may be less important. I think the endurance part, you know, to play 18 holes and stay focused the whole time. I think the flexibility part, things like that are important. But to your point, man, I can't tell you how many times I got beat by a dude, you know, drinking a beer, freaking whatever. So I think you go both ways on that. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, while we're talking about appearance, I noticed you wear a black a lot. Are you are you a big fan of Gary Player or what's the deal? Is it more photogenic? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I think it stems from the fact that like I'm very simple. I don't have a lot of clothing. I like the whole Steve Jobs you know, wear the same thing to work every day, not have that as a factor. And then honestly, I don't know. I mean, if you notice, I always have a hat on. Right. So I grew up playing baseball. I'm outside. I have some skin problems. And so I have a hat on all the time. And I just, I always had black hats, like no rhyme or reason just had black hats. So <laughs> I'm like, Hey man, let's just keep this thing simple. And, uh, it's honestly, it's not by design. I'm just that friggin' boring. Okay. Well, who told you to wear that floppy hat that's in your Instagram photo? <laughs> you look like a farmer. <laughs> you know what happened is I have fair skin, right? And so I went to my dermatologist one year and he said to me, Eric, from now on, when you go outside, I don't want any part of your skin uh, touch the sun. I said, well, guess what? I just dropped my PGA so I can wear shorts. So that's not going to work. And he said, cover your arms, cover your hat. And I came out with that bucket hat as the best solution, even though it looks a little goofy. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm being a smart ass, but I will tell you that last week I had a dermatologist remove a big piece of my face for the same uh, reason. Yeah, I'm telling you. Yep, exactly. Too many hours on the golf course. Mm-hmm. Let me shift again. Do you have an outlook for the game of golf in terms of what you see, in terms of levels of participation, either where it's been, where it's going? Are you optimistic about it or otherwise? You know what? It's interesting. I think if you look at golf stats over the past, let's say, decade or so, and now that we're beyond the bubble of the early 2000s and overbuilding golf courses, and, and a lot of courses, a lot of people get concerned about the amount of golf courses that have closed in the past decade, but they don't realize that they overbuilt so many. So I think we're just finding neutral with that. I'm concerned about the direction that society is heading and how that will affect people wanting to be outdoors for five hours. And I think that every day that goes by, every month, every year, things are so convenient. We're getting so lazy. I mean, I order everything on Amazon. I don't go to a store. Everything is in front of me on a laptop. And so for me to go outside in general, you know, and then to go to a golf course, And if I work Monday through Friday and I'm going to be at a golf course on Saturday, there's a million people there. I'm going to play. It's probably take me five and a half hours. I got to drive to the course, drive back. It's a full day. Yeah. And so I really think we as an industry as a whole need to look at alternative solutions to the 18 hole model. And that might mean it's hard logistically because cores are already built. Meaning like, you know, if you could go play three holes or if you could play six holes or, you know, some top golf has done a nice job, I think of, finding a middle ground between just everyday people and introducing them to golf. But then yeah. what would be the next step? Well, how do they go from top golf? It's hard to go from top golf to 18 holes. So can there be some form of middle ground? It's, what do you think on that? I, th- I think it's a tough thing for us. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think part of the success in top golf 
is that uh, alcohol's involved. Yeah, exactly. One hundred percent. That gets people out, away from their television set. No question. Two more questions. I mean, you've seen a lot of tens of thousands of different swings over the past decade. If you could give golfers of all abilities one piece of advice, swing advice, what would that be? Not too technical. Get a good grip. Okay. Is that simple? Yeah. I mean, all kidding aside, 80% of the swing errors that I've seen over the past 10 years stem from the fact that the club face is in a bad position. And so the real answer is make your club face in a better position. There's some micro things that control that, but it starts with a good grip. I'm so happy to hear you say that because I spend a lot of time gripping the club before I hit the ball. <laughs> a lot of my friends will make fun of me. They'll say, what is with you in the grip? And I'm like, it's important. That's the most so important, I, man. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. So last question. What would you like these listeners to remember or to do after hearing this podcast? Is there anything you'd like to plug or promote? We've mentioned a number of your assets, but maybe we missed a couple. I appreciate that throughout. I think we did an awesome job with that. I would love anyone golf specific who's looking to improve their golf game to go check out some of the YouTube videos. I think that's the easiest transition to go see what we have to say. I genuinely, like deep down, think that I can help anyone get better at golf, no matter their circumstance. So the YouTube is a really easy transition. They can check that out for free. Now, we have cagornogolf.com, the membership site. Check out the YouTube. If you like the YouTube, if you like what I have to say, if it helps, and you want to go to another level, then check out cagornogolf.com. If, if you don't want to go that far, then, then just do the YouTube. That's fine. So I think that anyone golf-specific for that would be my encouragement. I think just big picture, reiterating the personal development stuff and finding mentors and someone to help guide you. My Every single part of my life has been transformed when I really bought into the fact and idea that I need to try and make me better in every circumstance, not focus on my end goal in any of them, whether that be money, whether that be golf, business, relationship, whatever, is the process of me making Eric better has really transformed all of the areas in every aspect that I can help. So that would be one piece of thing I want some people to ponder on is focus on the making you better and let the rest of the stuff happen by itself. That's great advice. And I will mention that I spend a lot of time on show notes sections, and I'll make sure that all of the links to not only your stuff, but to some of the guys you mentioned, Tony Roberts, Gary Vee, those sorts of guys, I'll put them up there as well. Because I also believe, like you do, that things happen for a reason. I mean, your story about Mary and how you came to meet, you know, somebody listening to this today and maybe going and seeing a link that can change their life, you know, you never know. And we're going to make an effort to do that. So thanks for your time, Eric. I really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, are you going to be at the PGA golf show in January? I won't be there this year, but I think next year I'm going to try and get back into a routine of getting down there. Okay. Well, maybe we'll hook up one of these days because I only live about 30 minutes away from you. So maybe when the weather gets nicer, I'll, I'll book you for our in-person lesson. I would love that. I appreciate you having me here, Gordon, too. This, this was an awesome half hour, so I really enjoyed the chat. As did I. Thanks a lot. Right, thanks, Gordon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to GolfYeah.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com.